Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Today, we're talking about everything psychedelics. Now, you know, we're all blind in some ways. Blind to our biases, blind to our needs, blind to our habits. That's what good journalism is always for. Not for reaffirming how our beliefs, but for challenging us to consider new ones that are based on facts. And that's the mission statement behind the magazine Double Blind. And here to talk to us about it is its editor-in-chief, Shelby Hartman. Talk a little bit about what it is you've been working with and, and why are you even in the field of psychedelics? I mean, you know, out of, out of the blue, it seems like, you know, for the last 30 years, we've been arguing about whether or not cannabis is something that is a viable option for people. And then in the last three or four, all of a sudden, though we have poo-pooed and looked down on and been negative about psychedelics, all of a sudden psychedelics has this huge resurgence in the medical space. And in the conversations around the country, and you hear so many people who are talking about having had experiences and tripping experiences. I, I, I just want to introduce this whole process to our viewers. So let's go back to the beginning. When did psychedelics kind of resurface in the conversations? Mm. Yeah, that's a good place to start. So, <laughs> so, um, well, there's That's just awesome, so many right? different ways to answer this conversation. There's so many different ways to answer this question. Um, there was a decades-long ban on research investigating the therapeutic potential of psychedelics uh, following um, the Controlled Substances Act, which Richard Nixon signed into law in 1970. And then in the 1990s, Rick Strassman received approval by the FDA to research DMT. And that was kind of considered the birth of the quote unquote psychedelic renaissance or all of this new research that's coming out showing that psychedelics have incredible potential to disrupt our current mental health paradigm. Um, in the 2000s, there was another study that came out of Johns Hopkins University looking at psilocybin, which is the psychoactive component in psychedelic mushrooms for depression and anxiety in terminally ill patients. Um, and, you know, the results were miraculous. And so that inspired Michael Pollan, who you may know is a, a longtime journalist with The New Yorker and has several New York Times bestselling books to write a long piece for The New Yorker called The Trip Treatment, looking at the promise of psychedelics for mental health. And I think that that also was a really important catalyst in the cultural com uh, conversation around how we need to reframe these historically stigmatized substances. And, you know, when, when we look back now, a lot of people don't remember that, you know, during the, I think it was the early mid 60s, maybe early late 60s, that our government actually was utilizing and studying psychedelics back then to be warfighting enhancement techniques and intelligence enhancement techniques, those kinds of things, were right? not. Yeah, there was some um, research that was done by the CIA looking at LSD as a tool for mind control, um, which, uh, as far as I'm aware, they, you know, never ended up actually, you know, uh, implementing that in any kind of significant way. But I think at the time, there was a lot of curiosity about these substances, because they can shift your consciousness in such a unique way. So here comes Richard Nixon, and he 
you know, bans the research ability on that. Uh, we had already had banned the research on uh, cannabis. And so no one researches it for a while, but there uh, legally, but there were small factions around the world taking a hard look at something that was, you know, being consumed. And in several places around the world, not all psychedelics were judged the same and made illegal because there were places around the world where, you know, psychedelics were part of religious practices. Is that not right? Yeah. So there's many different ways in which psychedelics have historically been used um, and in which they continue to be used. And so there's the medical application of psychedelics, psychedelics and therapy. And psychedelics were used in therapy and also researched by scientists starting in around the 1950s in the United States. Um, and then, of course, there's the longstanding religious and traditional use of what we call entheogenic, which is really just another word for psychedelic substances uh, by indigenous communities. So for example, ayahuasca has been used for generations by Amazonian groups. Um, Iboga has been used um, in West Africa for a long time by the Buiti. And um, of course, Native Americans here in uh, North America have used peyote forever and ever um, as a part of their uh, religion and spiritual um, view, global view of the planet. And I mean, now, even while Richard Nixon had kind of banned its research, there were places that still allowed for indigenous people in the country to go ahead and use that in their religious practices, correct? Or am I wrong? Um, so there was a um, Supreme Court case which permitted Native Americans to use uh, peyote for religious purposes. I can't remember when that was, um, but it, it, there was a period of time where um, Native Americans were technically not allowed to use peyote for religious use. It's not like they have always been granted a federal exemption from the Controlled Substances Act. Um, and then the other group that is permitted in the United States to use um, psychedelics federally is the Unio de Vegetal, which is a Brazilian church which has been granted um, permission to use ayahuasca for religious purposes. Okay, so now here we are, it's 2020. And in the last few years, and I know this from my own personal uh, experience. I've been, been been just running in the person after person after person after person who has taken a trip um, and asked me if have I prepared myself to do so or am I about to do so? And it seems to be available again now because it is not. What's its status right now? Is it legal? Not legal? Inside, I guess in. Was it Idaho? Uh, uh, one state this this year legalized it, and uh, I, I'm at a loss. Yeah, there's a lot going on in terms of psychedelic policy reform right now. Um, psychedelics are still federally illegal, just like cannabis. Um, they're still LSD, psilocybin are still um, Schedule One substances on the Controlled Substances Act, which is the most highly restricted category, saying that they have a high potential for abuse and no medical use, which we know is not true. Same with cannabis. Um, that being said, 
Um, there's been some movement happening at the local level. So as you mentioned, um, Oregon passed the very first bill legalizing medical psilocybin in November. And um, basically what they did, is, this bill does, is it legalizes psilocybin, the psychoactive component in psychedelic mushrooms, only in therapeutic context. So it's not like anyone is going to be able to just go trip and that's going to be legal, but they're setting up an actual infrastructure in the state of Oregon where people are going to be able to go just like they do in the clinical trials and have supportive trips with therapists. Um, there's also been a lot of movement around decriminalization. So as we saw with cannabis, um, First, a lot of uh, activists are pushing for decriminalization of these substances so people just can't be incarcerated for possessing them or growing them or gifting them to people that they care about. Um, and, um, you know, TBD to be determined um, how many of those jurisdictions go on to pass some sort of legalization measure. Um, but a lot of people do anticipate that it's kind of following in the footsteps of cannabis where we're going to see decriminalization, um, across the country before we see legalization in a lot of places. Let's, let's kind of differentiate the, you, you hit and touched on, you know, three basic categories or they're all pretty much the same, but let's, let's go through this again. Psilocybin is what's found in, where's psilocybin come from? Psilocybin comes from mushrooms, magic mushrooms. Okay. Ayahuasca? Ayahuasca is a vine that comes from the Amazon, and the brew itself is made with two ingredients traditionally, although there's many different recipes. Uh, the vine and then a DMT-containing um, leaf called uh, shikruna. All right. Then LSD, is that not? That's a synthetic, right? LSD is a synthetic that was first created by um, the chemist Albert Hoffman um, in the 40s. Uh, but it actually are, comes from the ergot fungus, which a lot of people don't know. But it is a synthetic. And one thing that's important to understand, a lot of people ask about LSD versus mushrooms. What's the difference? Because these are the two most common psychedelics that people do. And at least the research has found that there actually isn't really a difference therapeutically. Um, so in a lot of the research that was done, like in the 60s, um, 50s, 60s, um, subjects were given LSD and mushrooms for many of the same indications, like depression, alcoholism, um, anxiety, end of life distress. And then the only reason why during the psychedelic renaissance, scientists really decided to focus on psilocybin instead of LSD is because the trip is half as long. So it's literally just a logistical resources thing where it's going to cost a lot more money to run clinical trials on LSD because the therapists are going to have to sit with the people who are tripping for twice as many hours. Right. And then what about uh, this uh, supposed uh, chemical that's uh, that can be found sometimes on toads or on uh, frogs? If you lick their back, there's something there. What is that? Well, there's two popular um, plant medicines that come from frogs. One is called combo and the other is uh, 5-MeO-DMT. And um, combo comes from, it's scraped from, um, from the skin of the Phylomedusa bicolor frog, which 
comes from the Amazon and it's actually burned into the skin. Um, and I've, I've done it. You can see my burn marks. Um, but, uh, yeah, combo is completely legal um, as of now. And it's a really interesting one because um, it hasn't really been researched, um, but indigenous communities um, traditionally use it uh, prior to going out and hunting. Um, and it's said to uh, make, improve your vision temporarily, give you a surge in energy. It's really good for people who are lethargic, struggling with depression. And it's also been shown to help with physiological conditions anecdotally. So like autoimmune conditions, for example, some people with celiac, people with celiac, Hashimoto's and other autoimmune conditions have reported that basically combo cured them. Um, so that's pretty crazy. Um, Wait, you said this is something that's burned onto you? I don't know, explain that. Yeah. So the way that it's traditionally administered is that a um, uh, the practitioner uh, heats up uh, a little stick um, and then they essentially lightly singe your skin and then they place the medicine on top of the burn mark and it enters in transdermally through your skin. Um, it's not a very common medicine. It's not something that we really, I mean, you're really getting into the more obscure stuff here. If you are in the psychedelic community, the plant medicine community, and you're drinking ayahuasca, and that's really kind of a part of your identity and a part of your life, then you probably have heard of combo and or tried it. But, um, uh, but this is not something that we are hearing about, say, like, in Michael Pollan's book or, you know, in a lot of the mainstream outlets that are covering the psychedelic renaissance, um, because these things, it, they just haven't even been like taken, you know, they haven't even begun to work their way through the FDA approval process at all. And they're considered kind of fringe. Okay. So I mean, this is uh, clearly what, what brought you to, I mean, how you started your journey with your magazine, Double Blind. Is it the objective to educate people, give people more information, just like we're doing right now on this whole phenomenon of psychedelics? Yeah. I mean, you know, there are a lot of people suffering, Montel, like, you know that. And um, we're just, uh, people are desperate for novel, novel solutions. And a lot of people are getting curious about psychedelics as, um, yeah, as a, as a way to, to heal. And Double Blind was founded because we want to provide people with reliable, trustworthy information on how they can safely embark on a journey with these medicines should they want to. Um, and sometimes the information that we put out is simply, we don't have enough information, but we think that that's as important to say as here's the information we do have. Gotcha. And, you know, what's been the reaction of your magazine to your new magazine? It's been wonderful. It's been wonderful. I mean, we get, you know, a million people on the website every month. So clearly there's a lot of interest. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's nothing but supportive. Uh, we haven't faced any, you know, like judgment or criticism in any way. So. Yeah. And I've, I found it very interesting that it seems just from my perspective, I don't know, I may be wrong, but it just seems to me like, you know, if you have a conversation with people about psychedelics, they're, they're, it's almost like some of the veil is, is completely removed. Um, 
in the conversation about that versus a conversation about cannabis. It's almost as if people are more accepting of psychedelics than they are cannabis. Do you get that impression or am I wrong? That's really an interesting thing for you to say. Um, I, I don't know that I can make a generalization like that because I think it depends on the person. Um, I mean, for example, like I most recently lived in New Orleans before living in LA and I can tell you in New Orleans, it's like, you know, everyone, I mean, I don't want to say everyone is smoking weed, but like it's common to walk down the street and, and smell people smoking weed and it's a part of the culture. But when I talk to people about psychedelics, they thought it was very weird and fringe. Um, granted, I would say, you know, I just did a piece, uh, Madison and I, my co-founder, have a, have a column on Rolling Stone about psychedelics and we have a piece coming out on um, psychedelics under Joe Biden and basically what's going to happen with psychedelic reform um, during his administration. And some of the activists that I interviewed for it said they are actually hopeful that psychedelic reform is going to move faster federally than cannabis reform just because, um, you know, there is so much more research showing the potential of psychedelics than cannabis. And um, really the whole focus of the psychedelic movement right now has been let's overturn prohibition because psychedelic medicines can disrupt our current mental health paradigm. Whereas cannabis is kind of like it's working on two fronts, right? Because on the one hand, it's like cannabis is a medicine, but on the other hand, even though like narratives around it have changed, there is still a really big emphasis on like 420 and smoking for fun and edibles and getting super high. And we just don't see that in the world of psychedelics as much. And well, now is psychedelics really looked at more as a medical agent or, I mean, uh, or, well, let's talk about, you said there's some amazing breakthroughs. Let's talk about some of the breakthroughs that we found in the last couple of years when it comes to psychedelic research. I mean, I've heard that psychedelics may have the potential to help people who suffer from PTSD, people who suffer from depression, people who suffer from um, psychotic events. I mean, uh, uh, could help uh, people who are schizophrenic. I mean, these are things I've heard. So I don't know if I'm talking about a lot of chat. So why don't you help us? Give me some ideas of what some of the breakthroughs have been in psychedelic research. Well, so an important disclaimer, I think, um, would be that the two conditions that um, that psychedelics are not recommended for are schizophrenia and bipolar, as well as if you have any kind of family history of psychosis. So that's wow. not to say that there isn't a safe way for you to engage with psychedelics if you have one of those conditions. But just generally speaking, if you apply to a legal psychedelic retreat center outside of the country, for example, Synthesis in the Netherlands or the Temple of the Way of Light in the Amazon, um, you likely they likely will not let you come if you have one of those conditions. So that's just an important disclaimer. Um, okay. Otherwise, psychedelics have shown promise for helping um, just about every mental health condition under the sun, which is hard to conceive of. Um, the most rigorous research that we have is looking at MDMA, sometimes referred to as ecstasy, for post-traumatic stress disorder. And that will likely be legal in the next like four to five years in therapeutic contexts. Um, and Silas, oh yeah? No, I was say, is MDMA considered a psychedelic? Well, it depends on who you ask, because MDMA does function differently in the brain than a classic psychedelic like psilocybin or LSD. Um, it does function different neurologically. That being said, um, 
some people would will group it with a psychedelic because um, the etymolo- the etymology of the term psychedelic actually means mind manifesting. And some people will say as long as the substance is essentially um, bringing forth things that are in your unconscious that you didn't have access to before and helping you process those things, then it would be considered a psychedelic. Um, so and, and, my big question too is, is cannabis a psychedelic? Right. I mean, it kind of, it seems odd to me in a sense that when you say if you would take something that would open up access or areas of the brain that you had previously not had access to, but you would not be able to deal with those on your own or do you, are you capable of, I, I'm asking, I'm just asking, are you capable of tripping on your own and getting some benefit out of that trip by yourself? I mean, that's a really big question and it's a really important one. So Double Blind actually has a course um, called How to Use Psychedelics. And the whole point of it is to help folks decide what substance is right for them and if they are aren't ready to trip by themselves. Or I mean, this is to say that it's not a yes or a no answer. It depends on the person. It depends on their situation. If someone has a really serious mental health condition, for example, like a combat veteran who has post-traumatic stress disorder or someone who has really debilitating depression or, you know, anything really serious, I would not recommend that they trip by themselves. Absolutely not. Because you want to have the support of someone if you start to get scared or if anything uncomfortable starts to happen, you just want to have someone there for you to support you. I think we, we spoke before when you, you did a podcast for us before. And, and I think, I, I don't know if I mentioned it to you back then, but I can remember, I'm a child of the sixties. You know I mean? I was born in 56 and grew up in the sixties and way back when I was in high school and junior high school, junior high school, high school, you know, uh, these people used to run around with, uh, you know, these little micro dots, you know, uh, matter of fact, it was like these little stickers that um, look like cartoon characters that were, Play, you know, remember those little uh what was that candy that used to pull off of a strip of paper um uh, it's a it's an early 70s candy uh and i'll never forget uh i was at a party one night um this is in my junior year of high school getting ready to go into my senior year or was that my senior year i think it was my junior year going to my senior year and i was at a party one night and someone had gone through and and dosed about 20 people at this party um, it probably was LSD at the time. I didn't know that. And um, I just remember that I am blessed to be alive today because I remember when I finally you know, came to, I was, uh, I said, maybe I came to, but I came back to who I was, realized who I, I was sitting on the roof of a friend of mine's house. And the two of us were sitting up on the roof. I had no idea how I got in there. I remembered you know, along the way, there was one point in time where there were horns honking at me. So I know I must have been in the middle of a highway. And there was another thing I remember walking in and out of a store and being yelled at, but I can't remember what the store was. And then I just remembered looking up and it was the, the sun was coming up and I was on a roof of a house. And I, I will tell you that that was the most unnerving thing that I've ever experienced in my entire life from spending time in the military and doing things that I did in the military, I, nothing in my world ever freaked me out as badly as that did. I think I was dosed. I'm, I'm pretty positive. And then, you know, later on, I mean, the next week, 
you know, there were some people who were laughing at the fact that they, they knew who actually did it, who put it in the punch and, you know, how we all got jacked up. But I, I just, um, in my entire then adult life, I was very fearful of anybody and have been really very hesitant to even consider, you know, uh, uh, ayahuasca or any of the other psychedelics just because of that bad experience that I had. Mm. So now, and I'm not asking you to convince me, but but why would I even want to do this? What What is my reason for doing this? If I decided that I wanted to take a journey down, you know, one of these psychedelic trails, why would I want to do that? Well, um, so there are a lot of people, Montel, interestingly, who have had experiences similar to you, who in the 60s or 70s, they did a psychedelic, you know, once or twice, and they had some wild experience, and now they don't really want to touch the stuff again. It's important to remember that, um, you know, the fundamental principle of, of tripping well is set and setting. We talked about this a little bit last time, but what is your mindset going into the trip? So are you um, going into the trip, knowing what you're taking, knowing what you want to get out of the experience and being and being prepared psychologically for what the experience might be like? And also, are you in a setting where you feel safe and supported so that you can fully surrender to whatever is coming up for you? Um, and so, you know, you can't really... It's like saying, you know, it's like, it's like, oh, you know, you took, you know, 10 shots of tequila at a party and passed out. And now you're asking someone, why should I have a glass of wine with dinner? I mean, it's like, you can't, you can't compare. I mean, how different the experience will be if you go into it with your eyes wide open and you're responsible about it. And, and believe me, I'm, I'm not asking this question in uh, because I'm, putting it down. I'm asking a question because I'm trying to wrap my hands around it. And you know what? I just remembered something while you were talking. I just remembered something that, that also after that first experience, I also remember uh, an experience that I had um, and I can talk about it now because I'm not on active duty, but I was on active duty in the military. And as a matter of fact, stationed out at 29 Palms in California. And I remember meeting a guy who was a native American who was a shaman who, you know, um, at a, an event actually was cooking up some peyote. And, you know, there were a group of us that literally, I think I had maybe this, I, I kind of faked it, but I had a, a, a little teeny tiny sip. And I remember that experience was also something really kind of crazy thinking that uh, I remember again, waking up in a convertible car with a few of my friends um, uh, that had all done the same thing. And we kind of woke up and we're out in the middle of the desert and, uh, you know, we never talked about it again. Nobody ever talked about it again. Um, and it, at that point in time, it wasn't necessarily technically illegal. So, you know, I didn't want to go into questioning whether or not there was a smart thing or not to do. So my question becomes to you, it's like right now where I am in my life, what would be a reason for me wanting to have this experience? I guess it's a, it'd be personal, I guess. I, I, explain this to me. Yeah, it is very personal. And, you know, we have a lot of journaling prompts that we um, encourage people to go through on their own in their own time um, that are, you know, in the course and also on our website. But 
Um, you know, I would say, firstly, you know, you have to ask yourself, what am I looking to get out of this experience? What am I hoping to get out of it? Um, is it healing? Is it growth? Is it just curiosity? Um, you have to get really honest with yourself about what am I seeking? Um, and, you know, read up as much as you can on double blind and on other sources about what the experience is said to be like. And if you think it's going to give you what it is that you're seeking. Um, and, you know, Jim Fadiman, who's a longtime psychedelic researcher and kind of considered the father of microdosing, um, you know, someone asked him in one of our webinars, um, how do I know if I'm ready to trip? And he said, you're not. <laughs> and the because you asked the question right. and it's not to say that you know you're not going to be afraid because there's inevitably going to be some fear because there's it's a, it's an unknown right and that's how humans work when you step into an unknown experience inevitably there's going to be some fear and some uncertainty but you have to really separate out for yourself what is healthy fear i'm afraid mm -hmm. because i'm a human and i'm ex about to experience something unknown I'm afraid because I am not ready for this experience or I am not fully wanting to commit to what this experience is. And then lastly, you have to ask yourself where you're at in your life because psychedelics, you know, they are extremely healing, but they don't always make your life easier right away because sometimes, like I said, it does bring things to the surface that you haven't been wanting to look at. So for example, you might realize, oh, I actually don't like my job or I'm in a toxic relationship or I really, you know, it's time for me to move across the country. I mean, psychedelics have been known to, to you know, fuel revelations about people's lives. And if you're not in a place where you're ready to have things shaken up and disrupted a little bit, then maybe it's not good timing. And you know, now what's this idea that it can also, again, and, and, and I'm, I want to ask this question, the difference between microdosing, is it, uh, how would I explain it? Is it similar to taking one hit or taking 10 hits? Meaning, you know, somebody passes a joint around, you take one hit, you get just a little teeny high, and then you take three hits and you're blasted. Or is it, is it the duration of the trip when you talk about microdosing? But you know, what's this idea of microdosing a psychedelic for problem solving? Yeah, so I would say it's more akin to the former comparison, which is you take one hit and you get a little high and then you take 10 hits and you get blasted off into the universe. Yeah. Um, the reason why it's different therapeutically is because, well, first of all, let's just back up a little bit. A microdose is one tenth of a normal dose. Um, so in the case of psilocybin mushrooms, a normal dose, like a full dose, if you're going to trip is a minimum of, of a gram and usually around like two to three grams is good. Five grams or more is considered a really big dose, but some people can go up to five or more grams. A microdose is between 0.1 and 0.5 grams. So it's really just a tiny little bit of a mushroom and same goes with LSD. It's just one tenth of a dose. So anyway, so would, would you even trip or would you just have a euphoria? 
No. So Jim Fadiman says, essentially, if you, if anything that feels like tripping is happening to you while you're, while you're microdosing, you are not microdosing. You should not see distortions. You should not like hear things that aren't there or see light, the light moving in a weird way or feel really, you should be able to go about your day exactly how you normally do, except you're going to feel a little, probably a little elevated, a little more happy, a little more focused. It doesn't do this for everyone, but like for a large majority of people, it really is just, you know, they call it, it's like having a really good day when you microdose. But the thing about microdosing like cannabis is that it's really treating the symptoms. So you have to continually microdose to feel the effects and the benefits of it. Whereas with macrodosing, you know, it's shown that you trip two or three times and essentially the way that your brain operates changes. And oftentimes people report that like, their mental health condition is severely um, or significantly improved over a long period of time, just from having those like two or three experiences. And that's why people say that, you know, if they actually experience a macro dose, that it can be almost in some ways for some, for some people, it can literally alleviate all the symptoms of PTSD or, or uh, other the symptoms of, of severe depression. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And and what about this idea of microdosing to problem solve? Is it because of the feeling of euphoria? Is that what it is? Or the feeling of, uh, like you said, having a really good day? So you're able to, you know, solve problems that you couldn't consider solving beforehand. And then I've seen some of the materials that you provided about, you know, people who have who have tripped and solved major problems. Yeah, I mean, so something that's important to understand is that we do have quite a bit of research at this point looking at macrodosing, but there's basically no research looking at microdosing. So we don't really understand how microdosing works. There are some researchers who don't even believe that it works very well at all, even though we have lots of anecdotal reports of people saying that it's changed their lives. Um, so I couldn't tell you exactly like why microdosing makes people feel like they can solve problem solve better. Um, my my totally uneducated hypothesis would be that psychedelics on a, you know, at large doses do shift the way that you perceive and shift the way that you kind of understand the world and that in a smaller dose, it's probably doing the same thing. Um, just in a very subtle way. I can tell you, I've definitely experienced that before while microdosing. You've, you've experienced what? Say that again. I have experienced, um, I have experienced microdosing changing, like slightly changing the way that I process and the way that I perceive in such a way that I feel like I can be more creative or like come up with solutions that wouldn't have necessarily occurred to me, say like in the context of work. Gotcha. I mean, you look at some of the materials and people who are everybody from architects to scientists to you name it, who utilize, you know, microdoses and, and in some cases macrodoses, but literally completely solve an issue that they had been working on. I guess you have to prepare yourself for the trip, understanding that you're trying to go into the trip to solve a problem, though, right? Right. Well, I mean, there is so much research that's going on right now. Is this research being done um, at the pharmaceutical level or is this research being done by uh, 
just research scientists? Uh, where, where is the research being done at? Um, I just want to quickly backtrack, though, and say that um, I it would be a mistake for me to say that people go into a trip wanting to solve a particular problem and then always coming out the other end having solved that problem. Because yeah. tripping 101 is you can go in with an intention like, I hope that this alleviates my depression or I hope this helps me figure out, you know, whatever is going on at work. But it's so unexpected how it's going to unfold. And sometimes what you end up experiencing is completely different than what you anticipated. And some people will say that the medicine shows you what you need to see most. So you might go in saying, I really want to figure out how to resolve this issue with my boss. And instead, you might spend the entire trip thinking about your partner. <laughs> um, so in terms of the research, um, yeah, Johns Hopkins University, uh, New York University, UCLA, Imperial College London, King's College London. These are some of the, the major ones that have investigated psychedelics. Um, but we're seeing research coming out of out of universities from all over the world. And, and, and are there there are there significant breakthroughs that people are finding in this research? I mean, absolutely. As I mentioned, MDMA and psilocybin are going to be legal probably within the next five years. And this is because the FDA has actually something called breakthrough therapy status, which means this treatment shows so much promise for solving a mental health problem for which we have no treatments right now that we're going to fast track it to approval and get it to market. Wow. And, um, you know, now again, people, people give out the website so people can come and know where to go to get a copy of your magazine or get some more information. Uh, Doubleblindmag.com. Uh, we have a physical print magazine, which is in bookstores across the country. So um, you can pick one up in your local bookstore or get one on our website. And we have online stories coming out all the time as well. So if you just want to read about psychedelics on our website, you can do that. Are you afraid of the fact that, you know, all of a sudden there's all these burgeoning psychedelic pharmaceutical companies popping up? Are you afraid that, you know, uh, like what this industry has done to date, um, they may take a good thing and turn it into a monster? Well, that is definitely a fear among longtime psychedelic advocates. And... I don't know. I would say at this point, it's just too, too, too early on to say what is going to happen. Um, I, uh, yeah, it's too early on. There are, there's a lot of capital coming into the space. Um, more than a hundred million dollars last year came into psychedelic drug development. And there's more than a dozen companies at this point who are researching psychedelics and trying to get them through the FDA approval process. Um, and we just, Madison, my co-founder and I can't even keep track of them all. It's like every day we get a press release about a new psychedelic company that's gone public in Canada, that's looking at some kind of psychedelic we've never heard of for some indication we've never thought of. Um, and really, I think the biggest question right now is, you know, for these companies that actually do manage to succeed, of which there probably won't be many, because let's be real, I mean, many, many companies never make it out of what we call preclinical research and even get their compounds into humans. But for the ones who do manage to get all the way through the FDA approval process, the question is, are they going to center equity and access? What are their priorities? Are their priorities to make a ton of money 
Or are there priorities to make sure that all the people who are suffering get access to these things? Of course it has to do with money. I can't even imagine. I, I don't, it's a, you take a look at a lot of the companies that jumped in and threw a lot of big money into cannabis. They, these, they, they can talk all the smack and lies that they want, but this had to do with the bottom line and that was increasing profits. So, you know, I, I just fear that, you know, what will be the difference between those developed by some new pharmaceutical company and those being used by the shaman on a reservation somewhere or by a church somewhere? Yeah, I mean, you're really getting to the heart of of what about you're really getting to the heart of dialogues that are happening within the psychedelic space right now, which is what, you know, it's accepted at this point that psychedelics are going to be legal. It's absolutely going to happen in the next decade. The question is, what does that look like? Um, and how do we learn from the mistakes that the cannabis industry made? Right. Especially, I mean, I, I can't see, you know, it, it, there have been people, the indigenous people in the, you know, rainforest and around the world who have been doing this for hundreds and thousands of years. Now, all of a sudden, they got to stop producing their own product and go buy something from Eli Lilly or whatever and and think that it was it was made with the same sincerity or, or, or the same you know efficaciousness as the products that they've been doing for thousands of years right well that's why it's important to have multiple models um kind of working towards legalization and the overturning of prohibition at the same time so if pharmaceutical companies want to get you know patent psychedelic compounds and get them to market and charge a lot of money for them i mean yes that's going to be devastating because there are some people who will never want to do a psychedelic outside of sort of a clinical medical context but if we also are having psychedelics decriminalized at the local level which is allowing people to do home grows and we also have you know um sort of an expansion of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which permits more people to use psychedelics legally in spiritual and ceremonial contexts, then at least there will be other ways that people can access these plants and fungi should they not have the resources to go through the FDA. Right. I mean, it would seem to me as if, you know, if we completely just, you know, turn us into a bureaucratic thing where, you know, uh, only the pharmaceutical industries get to do this. It's, it's just the same thing that's happening again in some ways with cannabis. And, you know, there have been those who have borne the burden, burden of this on their backs um, for thousands of years will be left out of the, you know, the movement to turn us into some sort of a financial, you know, windfall. Yeah, absolutely. This is um, this what you're speaking about is what we call sacred reciprocity. And sacred reciprocity is a concept that we talk about a lot at Double Blind, which essentially means how do we make sure that we are giving back to the indigenous communities who have sacrificed so much to preserve these plants and fungi for thousands of years? How do we build that into our business models from the get-go rather than having it be an afterthought, which is what happened in cannabis. Like by the time everyone really started talking about equity and access, it was too late because so much capital had already come into the industry and taken off. Right. Now, how do you predict things will, will happen here? You, you did say you think it'll be legal, legal uh, in the next five years. But that to me sounds like it would be illegal. It would be legal from, again, the pharmaceutical company standpoint, but not necessarily the Burning Man standpoint. <laughs> yeah. So in the next 
five years, I, I was referring specifically to MDMA and psilocybin in therapeutic contexts. Um, but um, I think that we'll continue to see decriminalization absolutely at the local level, which it'll be really interesting to see um, how that influences kind of like the home grow movement. Like there's already a burgeoning mushroom growing movement. Um, and so and then I think we're also going to probably see a number of states um, following in the footsteps of Oregon and trying to implement state legal psilocybin therapy programs. Um, we already there's already since November been two bills announced, one in Florida and then one in Hawaii to try and legalize psilocybin therapy. And and just one general question, because you are really the pulse of of this movement in a sense. Nationally, what do you uh, you know? We we hear feedback from polls saying that you know over ninety percent of people in this country now it's ninety percent plus believe that you know medical cannabis should be made available to those patients who need to have it, and then there's a a movement of or, or percentage somewhere above seventy percent of people in this country think that cannabis should be just made legal in the country. So where do you where, what are the numbers play out when it comes to psychedelics? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I don't know that there actually has been a nationwide poll looking at the um, acceptance of psychedelics. That's something I would really like to see. I would think, um, that I think I would think that it's almost one of those things that you really would have a tough time doing a nationwide poll because I'm not really sure if nationwide enough people are talking about it. Though right. the movement is building, I don't know if that's really hit a spot where you know you you know I don't think I've seen a, a article or a news feed on this in the last year that I can remember. Yeah, so um one of the things I'll just quote Rick Doblin on this because he's smarter than I am. He's the founder of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which is one of the primary research nonprofits who have who have, that has been behind the overturning of psychedelic prohibition. And he says, um, medicalization precedes legalization. And so I think, and that public opinion or public acceptance also follows that same trajectory. So I think what we're gonna see is, like I said, we're gonna see decriminalization spread because, um, uh, because there's just a growing understanding that at a minimum people shouldn't be incarcerated for possessing drugs. Um, and then after that, you know, with the um, growing number of stories coming out in the news media and documentaries and shows on Netflix and stuff, talking about the transformative experiences that people have had on psychedelics, that more and more people kind of come around to the idea of them being medicalized and then much, much further down the line, I really am not going to put a date on it now, we may see some kind of recreational paradigm, but no one's really thinking about that now. Gotcha. Well, I can't thank you enough, Shelby, for being a part of the show today and, and really schooling us all on psychedelics. And, you know, um, anything you want to add? Uh, how can people help move this, this needle forward? Hmm. Well, um, if folks want to get involved in changing policy at the local level, um, the decriminalized movement that's taken, you know, Taken the Country by Storm is called Decriminalize Nature. And you can find them on Instagram at Decriminalize Nature. But basically, they passed their first initiative in Oakland in 2019. And now there's literally more than 100 cities and counties 
um, and also some cities and counties in Canada that are basically drafting up their own versions of this initiative and trying to get them onto the ballot or pass through city council. So if you want to get involved in psychedelic reform, I would just recommend checking out that group and seeing if there's already some movement in your city or county to try and overturn psychedelic prohibition. And if not, you can contact them and ask them how you can start your own group because they have a templates for you to do that. And, you know, I'm sorry, before I let you go, I want to ask one quick one more question. In South America now, several places down there, they've set up these basically almost like ayahuasca tourism centers where people can come down and have, do a little ayahuasca tour. Um, it sounds like, a, you know, the creation of a Amsterdam, you know, for psychedelics. You know, and of course, it starts the way outside of the United States. I'm not sure if I trust going overseas somewhere to trip out with people I don't know. Oh, I mean, so I'm sorry to keep bringing up our course, but it's really designed for all of these sorts of questions. But what, you know, we go over how to vet your psychedelic retreat center. Um, but I would say um, there are some wonderful retreat centers, Montel, and I would not dismiss the idea of a retreat center. Um, the Temple of the Way of Light, which is where I went outside of Iquitos, Peru in the Amazon last February, is an amazing, amazing place. Um, as I mentioned before, Synthesis, which is a psilocybin retreat center in the Netherlands, is also an amazing, amazing place. So obviously, this is a serious thing, and you want to make sure that you go somewhere that's trusted. Um, but there are a lot of people doing this work with integrity because they know that there are a lot of people who are suffering who do not want to wait until this stuff gets approved by the FDA. Wow. Well, look, I, I can't thank you enough, Shelby, for being a part of uh, Free Thinking, or, or really, let's be blunt with Montel today. I, I um you know, I, you have a home here whenever you want to come back. If you want to give us more information, I would love to be able to get it out there so people can understand it and, and want to have people have the information they need to be able to make good decisions for themselves. Thank you so much, Montel, for having me. Absolutely. And thank you so much for tuning in to Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Make sure you tune in and stay tuned. So, you know, subscribe and, you know, give us your comments because I'd really like to hear what you think, especially when it comes to psychedelics. So shoot us some comments. Take care. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments.